Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Alina Stefanescu. Alina is an award-winning writer and poet. Her new collection, Door, is out now from Wandering Press. She joins us from her home in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome to Beyond the Zero, Alina. Thank you. Some of the themes you explore in your writing are about displacement and identity. Can you bring us back to your childhood and tell us how you got to Alabama? So um, my parents, this was under Ceausescu in Romania, and my parents uh, both met and uh, they decided they they had a sort of whirlwind romance and then I was born and they decided to defect. They decided to try and run to the US. At the time, my mom was a physician and at the time Romania had just changed its abortion policy. Uh, school was really upset that people weren't having children. I'm sure you've seen the orphanages on television and the, um, the situation that resulted because birth control was illegal. Condoms were illegal. The economy was closed. They were inaccessible. Abortions were illegal. And abortions were really common in Romania. And at the Ceausescu had just passed this law where you had to, um, where doctors would be checking women in their workplace, sort of surprise checks to see if they were pregnant. And there were a lot of different issues that my mom had as a woman with with that. Um, And they just decided to run. So they told the family one night at dinner, they called a couple of family members and they said, we're trying, we're going through, we're going to Prague. And from there, we're going to try and get to the US. We're leaving Alina. We don't know when we'll talk to you again. We don't know when we'll see you again. We love you. And then they left. And my mom was pregnant with my sister and um, sort of everything kind of started in that decision that they made, which was very difficult for the family that they left behind. Uh, so, yeah. And you were one at that time, weren't you? I was one. <laughs> wow. And then, so later on, your family moved to America and yeah. you went to Alabama, which I find is a very interesting kind of juxtaposition between the uh, interesting history of Romania and Alabama. That's right. So at the time, the US was really interested in. Um, um, Soviet bloc scientists. My dad was sort of was a metallurgist, was a metallurgy professor. professor. He was in soldification science, and the person who helped bring them here. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but he he was married to a Polish nuclear scientist who he had also helped bring here. And University of Alabama offered him a teaching position. So that when I came to the U.S., that's where I you know, found myself in Alabama um, in this new language with a sister, with two parents that I didn't recognize at all. I hadn't been with them um, and a totally different world from Romania. It's interesting that I guess in this time period, this is the very early 1980s. Is that right? Yes. So it would be 1980 is around when that happened. I was born in 78. Yeah. Okay. And I suppose that in America, this is really, you know, in that Cold War period. How did that affect your family, your parents especially? 
you know, that comes up in Dor and it comes up in other things I've written. There was a real, uh, a real, because they were stateless, because they defected, they had lost their Romanian passports. And so they had to become US citizens or they had nowhere to go. And so there was a tremendous pressure sort of to be ideal Americans, to, to really fit in. They had basically they'd lost their family ties. They'd lost the language in which they knew each other in which they knew themselves. And the, um, there was no, there's not a big Romanian exile community in Alabama. There wasn't, a, you know, a lot of um, different diasporas have a sort of intimacy and support networks that didn't exist here. And so it was very, uh, we spoke Romanian at home and Romanian was the language in which all the true things happened. So if we were out and my mom needed me to know something about a person or about how I should behave, it was in Romanian. And English was the performative language. American was the language in which we sold ourselves. And I think that that comes out sometimes or I feel it in my writing when I'm moving between Romanian and English and the word dur. We'll get to that in a minute. I just wanted to ask you, um, why do you think so much great writing comes from the immigrant experience? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good question. And I can't speak for immigrant writing in general. I can say for me, the reason it's a subject is because there was sort of this Romanian Republic of Alabama that I grew up in. And it was a different land. It was a land where people did all these Romanian things and ate all these Romanian foods. There were four of us, four little people in this kingdom or republic. And um, the death of the language, I married an American. My kids are, my mom used to joke and say, I'm, you know, you're gonna have American children. It was sort of a curse. Um, and, you know, my kids are very much Americanized. They've very much grown up in this exceptionalist environment, this, the navel gazing environment that America is, the US is. And um, for me, there's a tremendous loss in losing that language in losing my first language and losing a space in which it's spoken and a space that, you know, it's like losing another land. There's an in-between land, I guess, for me. So that's, I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think it does very well. Okay, well, let's move on to Dor, because I'm very excited to talk about this with you. So Dor is a Romanian word, and a lot of Romanians will say, oh, it's untranslatable. It's sort of this, it, the best way to describe it is a sort of longing that is, um, can't be satisfied but it's a happy longing. So if you are missing or thinking of something and I talk to a Romanian friend, they'll say, oh, me dorde, I'm, I'm longing for. And it's not a, in the US we would say, oh, well then you should do this and this to get it. But no one ever says that about dor in Romania. It's not a state that requires um, self-help or action or immediate gratification or a checklist or problem solving. It's a sort of acknowledged longing for something you can't have, but it's still beautiful to miss it. And um, it has its own temporality that is sort of, that uh, exists in these poems. And what I attempted to do with Dor was not to define the word, but sort of to give a lot of different flavors of it because I don't, I don't, I didn't want to try and limit what Dor was. I think that's conceptually, um, conceptually difficult and conceptually wrong. I think the uncertainty is necessary. What a beautiful concept. One of the, 
I guess one of the things that I read about you was you having a serious head trauma when you were younger. How has that, I guess, uh, come into your writing and especially into Dor? In Dor, it doesn't come so much. It comes more in the um, sort of novel essay that I'm working on right now. This a long work that is sort of a mix. I don't know what to call it. I'll call it a novel. But it comes up a lot in that. And the idea memory is fascinating. So much of longing is rooted in memory. And so much of memory is an unreliable narrator. We, we really think, you know, we burn a memory in our minds and we keep changing it every time and we start to believe it, you know? And, and I remember after the accident, I couldn't remember anything about myself. And people would tell me something I had done. And then I would, think that I had done it. I could recite the story. I would look at a picture and someone would, so it was difficult to know who I was. Think about baby photos. Um, and Marianne Hirsch has written about this. You know, you look at a baby photo and, and you, you can say what you were doing in that photo because you've been told by others what you were doing. And so you, in a sense, have, you know, taken on that memory. And I'm fascinated by cultural memory. I'm fascinated also by this idea of the sins of fathers, which I think is very real historical memory and historical trauma in, in various areas, whether in Romania and um, the Holocaust there and, um, you know, or in, in the South, growing up in the South, which is really haunted by, by slavery, by racism and by white supremacy. Hmm. Okay. At the time of that accident, you were 15 and you told me that you lost about two years of your memories, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, and th that's sort of what this novel is, is sort of working on, too. It's working in this space of the unrecoverable, but also who you are when, uh, when you don't know. I don't remember where my first kiss was. And the only way that I know anything and the only thing that I, the only things that I'm sure of from those two years are the things that I wrote in my journals. So journals for me are sort of, I don't know, a small monument that will be ruined eventually, but they keep, they keep, if you ever lose your mind or your memory, you'll find yourself again in your notebooks. So they're, um, they're important, I guess. I know you were someone who used to take a notebook with you in your backpack everywhere you went, even as a child. How do you know this? I know. I do my research. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, and I still do. It, you know, I would go, I'll go to a party and I have, you know, in my purse, my notebook, and I'll disappear into the bathroom for 15 minutes. And someone will be outside knocking. You know, it's, it, it's been that way. It was that way in college. It always, always. In fact, when I was mugged in New York and this man just ripped my backpack off and ran with it, the only thing I cried about, I lost my money. I lost everything. My tickets, you know, the only thing I cried about were the journals. I, and I looked in the trash cans everywhere to find them. You know, that was, and I lost, I lost that year. And that to me is the worst. So. Something that's completely irreplaceable. That's right. Would you like to read us some of your poetry? Um, I will. I will read one. And I'm trying to figure out which one to read. I'll read one from Dor, even though it's uh, not as new. So this is, um, this is called Relapse. And the epigraph is from Adam Zagajewski. 
Just every elegy always conceals the hope that the miracle it celebrates, the miracle of someone's life, of some event, will come into being once again. A poem's mystery is always ahead of us. Relapse. In the car, bleary-eyed, we downshift past a dying bird, the struggle to untangle broken bones, to steal a step forward. What life believes death when it arrives? A desert monk named Agathon lived for three years with a stone in his mouth so he might learn to keep silent. When we return to a space without words, it is a relapse. Rise from bed with an image of mom, remembering the image is all she left. The bitter buzz of whiplash, a was, a was, a was ink. Stages of grief are closer to stadiums where we sit and engage the world, schools where we learn to spectate. Even if death is nothing that happens on stage, but a galaxy we can't see beyond. Maybe these are different doors and I'm starved for a label. Suicide, a door that closes us. Euthanasia, a door we ask others to shut. A story about consent and how we honor other bodies. And something else, a mother's death, unspeakable as exquisite sex, unfathomable ravage, the knot and ruin of a good life, the bird's wing, the beak's crunch, the innocent blizzard. So that's relapse. My mom died um, a few years ago, suddenly, uh, while she was traveling of an embolus in her sleep. Um, and I'm named Alina. I'm named after her mom, who died of breast cancer before they defected in Romania. And I think that was one of the reasons that she wanted to leave. And there's a long story, but the poems in here also cover this space in which my, my grandfather, they were both physicians, and they had a very intense love relationship, Alina and my grandfather. And he, um, he made her, she made him sign this sort of agreement that if she ever got to the point with breast cancer that she was unrecognizable to herself, he would give her an overdose of morphine. And he wouldn't tell his daughters that it was between them, that it was a, a promise of love. And so he did. And um, my mom was really angry at him because she was pregnant with me. And uh, so there's sort of these things that kind of have come over the ocean too. And there's these, you know, there's ghosts, I guess, in Dor. Um, I never met Alina, I never met my namesake, but, I'm named after um, what some would call, you know, a mother and another would say a moment of euthanasia, which changed everything. Thank you for reading. That was, that was beautiful and full of grief. Beautiful poem. Thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, it's grief, but it's also love. I think for Alina and Georgia, they had their story. You know, they had, he honored, he promised her. 
He promised her, he signed it with this pen. There are these nudes he took. He took her into the mountains. It, they had a very intense, passionate relationship. And he stopped believing in God after he did that. So I think, anyway, the cosmos is complicated. <laughs> Let's take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're talking to Alina Stefanescu. Do you spend too much time on social media when you could be spending time with your family or writing that novel? Here at GetCancelled.com we can help. We can personalize a media strategy guaranteed to get you cancelled. Use the promo code for your first month free. GetCancelled.com Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're talking with Alina Stefanescu. Alina, as a child, were you a voracious reader? I was an absolutely voracious reader. Um, it was the sort of, it was an escape for me, but it was also, it made my world bigger in Alabama. It, it, um, it's where I lived. It's where I understood myself. I didn't often understand myself in peer groups. I wasn't very girly. I wasn't, I just, I didn't have this longing to be part of things in the same way. Um, I was more interested in sort of understanding and watching. So uh, books were, books were my lifeline. Would you say that was a gateway book for you? Was there a book that opened up the world of literature for you? I'm not sure if there was one, one book. I do remember, um, I do remember being 15 and going to Romania for the first time to meet family again. Uh, we hadn't seen them since I left. And um, we, I remember a friend had this book called Peculmile Disperari by Emil Choran. And I think it's the heights of despair is the way it's translated. And everyone in Romania, the young people there, they didn't really have much stuff, but they had ideas. And so we would sit and talk all night. That was just what you did. You talked about ideas all night. And it was, it was mesmerizing to me to be around people my age who thought and wanted to talk about the world, about ideas. So Choran, um, I guess paradox was sort of my weakness or my gateway. And Peculmile Disperari would be the, the um, sort of one way to look at it. And um, Choran has said in a different, in a different book, he said, um, there are only two ways in which life's confusion can be expressed the curse and the hymn. For those who cannot handle them, there's a narrow escape left, the paradox, formal smile of irrationality. Its only use is to adorn the irreparable. Theologians are parasites of the paradox, but I think I am too. Are you ready to talk about what you're currently reading and what you're looking forward to? Yes, I'm going to grab them. So I've been doing a lot of reading for reviews lately. So that's sort of been the the focus of my of my reading. Um, and I've reading Kate Zambrino's To Write As If Already Dead, which is fascinating because um, it is sort of it has sort of a it's it's posthumous, right? Or it has a posthumous voice because it uses Hervé Bear's posthumous voice. And um, it's sort of in dialogue with Gibert's looking at um, AIDS, looking at his own death in the mausoleum of dead lovers. It, it brings in excellent questions about uh, what right authors have to write about their friends. And she, 
she replicates this by giving examples from her own life. So she's writing in dialogue with that book, but also in dialogue with her decisions and what she's writing. So what Gibert did with the Mausoleum of Dead Lovers, which is essentially a notebook, he said, it's a novel. And Kate Zambrino has done the same thing with um, To Write As If Already Dead. So it reads like a memoir or it reads like a diary, but it's a novel. And I think it has some, that issue of what we can say about our friends' lives or what we're allowed to write is a really sort of, I don't know, hot button issue in uh, American fiction and literary community. There's a lot of tussling over what that means. So that's been an interesting book um, to review and to read alongside uh, Herbeji there. And another one that I've been reading again, again for another essay, is uh, Antoine Valadine's Minor Angels. And Valadine is a fascinating writer to me. Valadine has, um, it, this is the translation by Jordan Stump. And Valadine is like, he has a lot of different, so there's Valadine, but there's also this whole sort of school that he created that he calls post-exoticism. And it has several different authors, all of which are Valadine or heteronyms. So it reminds me of Fernando Pessoa um, that all write in this particular school. And uh, it is not, it, it sort of dismantles the idea of linear um, chronology it, in an interesting way. It attacks our ideas of progress, which are predicated on a sort of you know, materialism that moves forward, this march forward. There's none of that for Valadine. And his characters are um, revolutionists in apocalyptic situations who, where the world has gone wrong, but they're also very hopeful. So I like Valadine's uh, hopeful post-catastrophism is the best way, I think, to put it. He's very interesting, isn't he? Yes, talk to me about Valadine. I really liked Radiant Terminus. It's set in a kind of Soviet post-apocalyptic environment. And there's a real big ambiguity between good and evil and what's right and wrong. Yes, that I think that that is one of the one, one of the things that attracts me so much to what Valadin does is this idea sort of, he plays with identity. So at a time when identity is so fixed and so important, Valadin gives us characters whose names change, who are overwriting and over narrating one another, um, which is what happens in Minor Angels, with, where the countries and the locations don't really exist. He's sort of got that, that um, and, and where we tell, we keep each other alive by telling stories and the stories change. So memory is sort of the locus and, um, ethnic identity is not, uh, is not, I don't know, is not the, the fixed point. It's not fixed. Um, and I like also that the post, the post-apocalyptic time in Valadin is different because it has people and it keeps going. It, the world doesn't end as opposed to, you know, Guido Morselli's H.G. Dissipatio, which is also fascinating. I love Morselli as well. And that's also a book I finished recently. Um, but Morselli's is sort of the last man at the end of the world book, the last one alive. And you are looking at the ruins. There's no, there's no hope in it. So I think right now at this time, uh, books that are looking at apocalyptic situations 
with sort of a sort of hope um, are fascinating to me, especially in fiction. And especially when they are abandoning teleology or moving away from any kind of teleology or direction. So I also pretty currently read um, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. And then there's another book, the, the, a series of lectures that were compiled by his students after he died suddenly, which is just, just the most, just so sad, so sad. Mark Fisher's voice was such an important voice, I think, for this time. But anyway, his students put together this book that was sort of what his lectures were like. So I've read that. And I think it's, a, again, speaking into this space where you're looking at um, apocalypse and where you're looking at, where you're looking at uh, TikTok land and where you're looking at book marketing and book publishing, where we're all you know, marketing our own books, selling our own books, having to have a social media presence, creating this persona that is also likable, but not too likable. You know, the complexity of um, identity as a, as a market product right now and how Fisher points out that, you know, that's the whole point. That's how capitalist realism works. We don't have any other option. There, there's no other option except the selling and the capitalist political economic system. And it's the lack of imagination that um, sort of keeps us on this treadmill, which is what Paula Dean flips in a way and what some, um, what some fiction writers do. I think fiction is giving us interesting, uh, interesting counter arguments or counter visions for the future. It seems like one of the few places where now you can really have free speech without worrying too much. Is it within fiction? I think that's more true, for example, in France than in the US. I would say, like, I was talking to a friend the other night about how some writers who are so well received in France, for example, Marguerite Duras would, was never big in the US. And there's a reason for that. The US is still a Puritan country. This is a country that is obsessed with purity. And we've always been obsessed with purity. If you, we have a really hard time letting go of some idea of innocence. And I think it's, um, and we're always sort of selling or whitewashing or cleaning up or, and I think that that is a real challenge for literature. Um, and sometimes for me as a writer, especially with, the, with this longer work that I'm working on, you know, it's not just about an unlikable narrator, but it's about writing incredible complexity where nothing is certain and no one is good. No one is that great. You know, in reality, we are all guilty of something. And I think that I'm not sure that um, the American literary scene is as good at supporting that as other spaces. Let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with Alina's top 10. This week's episode is sponsored by the new Google Home Assist. Hey Google, what's the weather today? Why don't you go out and check for yourself, you fat piece of shit? Now, with 10% more attitude. Fuck off. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Alina's top 10. Um, and I want to say one more thing. You know, the books that I loved growing up or the books that, that I've read a ton of are the diaries of revolutionists and 
um, their memoirs. For example, Emma Goldman was huge for me, Vera Figner, um, Lina Constante, um, all of these people who sort of had these, were idealists, had these very strong ideals. Um, I have an affinity for anarchists that's always sort of been there um, and that um, has played an interesting role in different phases of my life. So my, liter my, my taste in literature and the books I love, I think, um, have my stack here and I'm looking at it, has something to do with that. So one that I would say um, that I read recently, surprisingly, is Annie Ernaud's The Years. And I, th I think that the way Ernaud occupies time and inhabits time is incredible. I think that the way that she writes a sort of collective we, um, and the way that she writes complicity in the things that are happening is fascinating to me. And I just, I couldn't stop reading the years. And I ended up buying almost everything that she's ever written. So, cause it was so good. Another one that I love is um, Mihai Sebastian for 2000 years. And Mihai Sebastian was a, um, he's sort of, I, there's some, there's some writers that I love who were sort of, Austro-Hungarian citizens. I don't know how else to describe them. A lot of them were, a lot of Romania's most incredible writers were Jewish. And a lot of them fled um, after the fascist uh, regime and after, the, after um, World War II. And Mihai Sebastian survived fascism only to be hit by a car and to die um, of an accident in the street. And the book that he wrote for 2000 years is sort of an expose of his close friends, including people like Nicolae Yorga, Emil Choran, um, Mircea Eliade, these, these incredible Romanian intellectuals. And he watched them move down the path towards fascism. He watched nationalism attract them. He watched how their minds were slowly seduced. And he wrote it as a novel, but it also, you can kind of see who is who in the characters. And it's an, it's just an incredible, incredible book published by other press. And it's something that has, I don't know. I still, I have, I've read it a lot during the Trump years. I read it a lot. And I just went back to Mihai Sebastian. Also, I would say, Ginny uh, Erpenbeck, The End of Days. Uh, just such an incredible, incredible book in, the motion across time in the the desolation but also the hope of the voices the um the the characters and the mix of idealism the destabilizing sort of narrative across different geographies but also this sort of focus on the land and the space and um, susan bernofsky's translations of Urbanbeck are incredible. And I think that her translations of Walzer are incredible. And this has been, the past few years have been sort of years in which translations have mattered to me. For example, Mihai Sebastian, some translations of him are much, much better than others. Um, and I'm, yeah, I, I couldn't, I went back and back to the end of days. So it, it's about communists, people who are dedicated communists. And I'm always interested, I think, in, in um, people who are idealists, who believe in something, and um, who aren't pragmatic or practical. Those are, those are, I guess, they fascinate me. So another one would be uh, The Black Envelope by Norman Manea. 
Uh, Norman Manea is an incredible Romanian writer who, who I, I love the way he thinks. It, also, he's, he said in some interview at one point that dor was an untranslatable word, and I'm not sure that that's true, but I thought it was interesting that he felt the need to mention it. Uh, so in, in um, The Black Envelope, it's basically about a middle-aged intellectual who is sort of trying to figure out what happened. He's he navigating morality and is trying to figure out what happened to his father and why he died. And you see a sort of portrait, a dark portrait of what totalitarianism looks like. And you could say communism, but I would say Romanian communism. I would say the way that it played out in a one-party state with various autocrats at the helm and a, um, a party that was essentially uh, an ideology, an ideology factory um, that you know was unhumane or inhumane. Um, and Manea is from Bukovina, and he also is sort of, um, I would say he's more of like, he, again, he has a sort of anarchist sympathy. Uh, and he writes that way. He writes very, very disturbingly. Um, and despairingly without anger. So anger is not as fascinating to me as a, um, as a narrative technique. I think outrage is really easy to elicit on the page. I think it's very easy because it asks us to choose one side and it makes the story very simple. And uh, that, that's, just, that's not why I read. I would also add um, um, Vain Art of the Fugue by Dumitru Tsepianag. There's a re one of the reasons I love this book is because um, it has a really simple premise. It's basically uh, someone leaves carrying an armful of roses from his house and he does various things and all of them have some meaning, but they also don't have a meaning. That the retelling, the story and the way that Sepinac's story works is in the retelling, in the motion, which resembles the fugue. So in Romanian, the word Fuga is the word for fugue, and it means to run. And Dor has several fugues in it based on this idea of running. But the fugue is also uh, something that has been engaged by various sort of esoteric Romanian writers uh, as, a, as a liminal state, as a non-linear state. And so um, Sipenag, Zipinag does some really fascinating things with esoterica that he doesn't invoke, but it's in sort of dialogue with um, other writers, including Robert Klein, who focused on the fugue. So on the fuga, on the running, on the motion. Another book that I love is Dan Daniel Carms. Today I wrote nothing. And this is the translation by Matvey Yankovic. And Daniel Carms, I think it just changes the way that you think about writing or change the way that I thought about writing. Um, there's not really a way, even though there, he has, others have described him and he had a certain school that he was a part of. Really what he does is he creates these incredible small, stories that are almost like inverted icons that sort of break as you read them and refer to themselves. 
and he's humorous and dark in in the best way and I think that um I love reading him I read him again and again and then I would say um an ermine in Chernobyl by Gregor von Rizori. So this translation by Philip Baum is incredible. It's the NYRB version of an ermine in Chernobyl. And I had the opportunity to talk to Philip, Philip about it. And he said it was one of the most difficult books that he's translated just because von, von Rizori's language is so rich and so Baroque and so brocaded and so, um, so of a time. But it, it's sort of a look back at Chernovitz. It's, it's um, von Rizori's Chernovitz. And it's uh, heartbreaking because it's the same Chernovitz as the Chernovitz of Paul Salan. It's the same Chernovitz um, of Rose Auslander. It's a space that was a, a majority Jewish space and um, was absolutely destroyed um, in the Holocaust and, and the Romanian complicity in that. And what Juan Rosori does sort of create this ode to, um, to the city, but also to this time and this space. And it's humorous and it's folkish, it's absurd, but it's also gives, it creates a mood that doesn't exist again. You don't forget this Chernobyl. And he doesn't name it Chernobyl, he calls it Chernobyl, which I think is also interesting. And I, and I have always sort of wondered why he created this alternate land, that he wouldn't call it that, because it was, you know, maybe it's like the Romanian Republic of Alabama. It was a space that only existed once. And you can't refer to it on a map, right? Kol, Kol, Kolima Stories by Varlam Shalamov is, probably a book that I would call my favorite now. And I think that um, he, the short stories and the way that, that um, Shalomov writes a short story and the sort of the characters that he gives us, the indeterminacy, the, the, the prison life, the life in the gulag, but also the, the absence of clarity. There's everywhere, you know, Prison, if you read Shalomov, you see prison as a space in which there's always a competition for status. And it's like the regular outside world in that sense. And Shalomov does a really good job of, of replicating how that plays out in, a, um, in an ideologically oriented state where loyalty and where what you say, um, how gossip influences that, how gossip makes politics, uh, and also just beautiful landscape writing. Um, Svetlana Boyne's Another Freedom, The Alternative History of an Idea. So Svetlana Boyne is a really unique theorist and she's not with us anymore, unfortunately. She passed way too young, but she writes sort of this, these love letters to, uh, to different writers, including um, Pushkin, Kafka, Mandelstam, she puts, she puts Hannah Arendt and Heidegger together. Uh, she plays with these 
these people that have fascinated her. And she also, she, she was the creator of this idea called the off-modern. Her view of art was that we don't need to destroy one and get rid of the other. We need to mess with it all. We need to change it. Uh, she talked about nationalism. She's a really incredible writer on nationalism, on the difference between sort of this nostalgic nationalism that you see rising in, in you know, Poland and Hungary. You see it, of course, in the US and especially in the South with the little Trump rallies. This idea of like a golden age that Ceausescu also mobilized for his communism. Um, versus this I, this sort of uh, nostalgia that is also um, um, a creative nostalgia that looks back and makes some beautiful other land out of it, not a land that can ever be inhabited. And Svetlana Boim's writings on nostalgia influenced Dor a lot and influenced the way that I think about what we can ethically long for in, um, in a political state and in a homeland and in the idea of a nation, what, yeah, what the limits are. Do you have an honorable mention for us? Yes, Robert Musil's diaries are fantastic. I, I go back to them again and again. Um, I, I love sort of reading how he thinks, you can really see how Agate um, comes out and the man without qualities, the man without qualities also inspired Hervé Gibert in, I think reading Musil's diaries sort of gives you a backgrounder on a lot of the things that are happening in, in literature. A lot of the, the um, dialogues that are happening between writers and what they've read. Because right, so many writers are readers too. We, we read a lot. Most of us read a lot. We love reading and we come to the, to the page with what we've read you know, changed by it and in dialogue with it. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where we can find you? I'm online at www.alinastefanescuwriter.com. Um, I might be there after I die for five years because I paid with a credit card and it's like the five-year plan. So I could be there, you know, probably not eternally, but at least for the, for the next five years. Thanks so much for coming on Beyond the Zero. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thanks once again to Alina Stefanescu. Her new book, Door, is out everywhere. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode next week.